So every summer, usually around the first, second week of June, it kind of goes sometimes a little bit longer after that, the United States Supreme Court releases a whole host of, of its rulings on cases that's been before its docket during, during that current term. And it seems like it's always, like I said, the, the week of our high school mission trip, this first week of June, when some of these big rulings come down. I can remember multiple examples of this happening. And one year in particular, when the Obergefell decision came down, I can remember us driving back from our mission trip, you know, talking to the students about the implications of this ruling and what it means for our country and, and what does it look like for the church to engage in light of this ruling. Whatever decision a court comes to, especially one of the highest courts of the land, they're almost always important. And they, they have a lasting impact long after the rulings are handed down, sometimes for good, and sometimes that lasting impact is not good, not good for the people and, and not good law. In our passage today, we, we see a, a similar gathering in Jerusalem that has the potential to either bring clarity or confusion to the issue of what it means for the Gentiles to be saved. And as we heard last week, Peter preaches boldly that the Jews and the, and the Gentiles both are saved by God's grace alone, not by grace plus something else. He gives a powerful eyewitness testimony of how the Holy Spirit has actually been poured out on those Gentiles, proving that they are saved by God's grace proving that they don't need to be circumcised in the flesh because they're already made righteous in God's sight. And he concludes with remarks in verse 11 that, that caused the, the crowd to, to be silent when he says these words. He says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as the Gentiles will. He says, they both, we both will be saved by God's grace. And so as this Jerusalem council is gathered to get together to, to wrestle with this question is what does it mean for the Gentiles to, to come to faith? The council gives their ruling today. And that judgment still has importance and impact for the church this very day. And it brings great, great clarity to what we understand it means to be a Christian. So Building off of last week's main idea, our, our main point this morning is this. We are saved by grace alone. That was Chris's point last week, and it's, it's very consistent here because this is the second part of, of that passage. And this grace, the second part, this grace frees us to turn from sin and to be able to love one another well. So we're saved by grace alone, and this grace frees us to turn from sin and to love one another and as we walk through the passage, we're going to have basically two divisions. The first is verses 12 through 18, where we see that James listens and he speaks. And then we're going to look at verses 19 through 21, where James shares his judgment. So as we walk through the text, this will be our major division. But let's just ask the Lord to lead us as we specifically talk about this passage. Now, Father, please give us wisdom. Lord, please give us joy through this text. Please help us to understand what, what you are saying and help us to rightly apply it to our own lives as we seek to love our neighbors and God, as we seek to root out sin in our own hearts. Father, as we depend upon the grace that you give to us as we rest in the spirit, help us to do that. But Father, I pray that we would be a people who have great confidence to know that we are saved 
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He is the one who makes us righteous by his sacrifice and his, his faithfulness. And we have eternal life and a promise because of his resurrection, Lord, and so we rejoice in him, our Savior. Lead us as we study your word. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles open, begin reading with me in verse 12. It says this, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David and his, that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So in verse 12, the very beginning of our passage this morning, we hear that Barnabas and Paul are relating what signs and wonders God has been doing through them among the Gentiles. They're, they're sharing these stories. Man, I would have loved to have heard some of the stories that they share of what God has been doing in the lives of these particular Gentile believers they've been ministering to. Just as with Peter, Barnabas and Paul are trusted servants that the council know. And if you remember, like Barnabas is the one that's a little bit less familiar with us. But Barnabas is introduced back in Acts chapter 4. If you remember, there's a beautiful picture in this passage where the believers are, are selling their lands and their houses. And they're, they're bringing the proceeds from the things that they are selling to the apostles. So they would be able to help any that has need. And in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 through 37, we hear that there's this man named Joseph. Joseph was a Levite. He was a native from Cyprus, and he had a field that he sold, and he brought the money to the apostles, and he laid it at their feet so that they could help others. This man, Joseph, it says in verse 36, that the, the apostles called him Barnabas. They gave him a nickname, which means son of encouragement. They were so encouraged by this brother that that's what they called him. You are the, a son of encouragement. And so they know him well in Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 9, verse 27, Barnabas is one of the, the people who vouches for Paul. When Paul is converted, the disciples are afraid of him. They don't know if he's actually uh, intending to hurt the church by deception or if he's genuinely been converted. And so Barnabas vouches for Paul. And he goes to the apostles in Jerusalem and he declares to them, based on uh, Acts 9, 27, he declares to the apostles how on the road Paul had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of the Lord. And as a result, Peter, I'm sorry, as a, as a result, Paul went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly. So he, he's, he's so known that they trust his counsel when he says, Paul's a faithful minister and they allow Paul to stay and preach. 
And then later in Acts chapter 11, when word gets to the church in Jerusalem, that there's, there's a, you know, a church, a vibrant church being planted in Antioch. Who is it that they send to go and encourage the church? They send Barnabas, right? This son of encouragement who's going to build up the church because he's a man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, as chapter 11, verse 24 tells us. And Barnabas and Paul, they spent a year in Antioch teaching and meeting with the people. So it's no small thing that Barnabas and Paul were those that are going before the leaders to share this testimony in Jerusalem, giving testimony about the signs and wonders that God did amongst the Gentiles through them. And their testimony would have been given weight by this audience because they knew Paul and Barnabas, and Paul and Barnabas knew them. So when Paul speaks and when Barnabas speaks, the crowd listens, and they share this good news. And so Barnabas and Paul add their voices to Peter's, all three of them, trusted voices saying the exact same thing, that God himself has been moving to save the Gentiles and bring them to himself. God has been on the move. Our God isn't some distant God, some weak God, some God that doesn't act. No, our God is active and moving. He's living. He's personal. He's constantly working. He's moving to encourage and strengthen and equip and build his church. And that's what Peter and Paul and Barnabas are all giving testimony to. We don't always see the signs and wonders that that God might be working like they're sharing, but let it encourage your souls to know that, that, that God is always at work in the midst of his gathered people. And let us not be, let us not minimize how amazing it is, the reality that the Holy Spirit indwells the lives of believers. God gives his Holy Spirit to those who trust in him. This is miraculous. And if you are in Christ, brothers and sisters, this has happened for you. So don't, don't let the miraculous nature of this escape you. And so they're sharing this testimony that's in line with what Peter said. And then in verse 13, James speaks. After their testimony, James requests to the council, he says, brothers, listen to me. And this is something that they were, they were eager to do. They were eager to listen to James. So why is that the case? Like, who is this James? Because sometimes there's, there's lots of different you know, characters in the Bible that have similar names. So which James is this and why would they want to listen to him? Well, we know that it's not James, the brother of John, because that James died in Acts chapter 12 when Herod killed him with the sword. So it's not, it's not John's brother, James. Instead, this is James, the brother of Jesus. And James, we know, probably came to faith in Christ after Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection. We hear of this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. So if you remember, Jesus' brothers didn't immediately believe that he was the Messiah. But those things change when you see the risen Christ standing before you. And he believes that Jesus, his brother, is the Messiah, the Son of God. And Paul tells us in Galatians 2.9 that James, along with John and Peter, they are the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. These are the, some of the main leaders within that church. And, and as Acts goes on, Acts 12.17, it leads us to believe that James himself is, is primarily the leader in the church at this time in Jerusalem. This also is the same James who wrote the epistle of James. You know, the, the book where we hear that faith without works is dead. It's the same James who later came to be known as James the just because of his godliness and his faithfulness. And church tradition tells us that James was so faithful 
and diligent in prayer that by the end of his life, his knees were so callous by praying for the saints that it looked like the knees of a camel. This was the man that, that they were listening to and looking to for guidance, this James. And so in verse 14, James refers to this. He says this, uh, starting in verse 14, he says, uh, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And as I was reading that earlier in the week, I was like, I'm not totally sure who Simeon is here, but James knows his audience really well, right? James is speaking to a Hebrew audience, and so he gives the Hebrew name of Peter, you know, Simon or Simeon, he gives that name as he's talking about him, saying, hey, brothers, this Peter also is a Hebrew. Let me commend what he said to you. And he summarizes Peter's message. And one of the really cool things that, that James does as he summarizes Peter's message is he uses very specific words that would have a maximum impact for his audience, right? So he's using terms that they would recognize, these terms that would be connected with images and emotions in their heart so that they would understand what's the weight of what James is calling us to, right? Why is this so important, what he's saying? Well, he's, he's using very uh, weighted language to help them understand it. You know, and there's things in our culture that are like this too, right? Like there's phrases that I can say that, that connote an image in your mind almost immediately. So I'm going to use a terrible accent here. So I want you to, to finish this sentence, okay? So Luke, I am your father, right? <laughs> terrible, terrible uh, uh, voice. Also, that's not totally the right quote from the movie, but what image comes to your mind as you, as you, as you hear that? You think of Darth Vader, don't you? You think of him trying to seduce uh, Luke to the dark side and the Empire Strikes Back and his hand gets cut off and all that stuff. But, but there's an image that goes with that saying, and you even know how to complete it. In a similar way, James is using language that they're familiar with, that they would be able to think about and say, I know what he's talking about, but it's really unique how he's using it in a different way. Okay, so he says again in verse 14, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. He starts that God, he says that God visits the Gentiles. When you see the word, this idea of God visiting in the Bible, it's either when God is working to save his people, that's, that's one idea when God visits, he's saving his people, or the other is he's bringing judgment on the enemies of God's people. He's moving to save, he's visiting to save, or he's visiting to bring judgment on God's people. I mean, on God's enemies. The Gentiles used to be the ones who would be regularly receiving God's judgment because of their sin. But now, James says that they are being visited by the mighty hand of God to be saved. God is working in the Gentiles, those who he used to visit with wrath. He's actually visiting for salvation. He's showing the fulfillment of passages like Zechariah 2.11, which says, just think about, this, was, this is like, uh, you know, embedded in the Old Testament, and, and yet the fulfillment, we see it here. Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Like, this is at least a fulfillment of this idea. God is bringing people from the nations to himself. James is making it known that God is working in the Gentiles to save them in a similar way that he's done in Israel. You know, this saving the Gentiles, it starts with a trickle, right? Peter goes to Cornelius 
and his family, and this one family is converted. But it doesn't stay that way. No, over time, this trickle becomes a torrent. And the gospel continues to spread out, and it moves to the ends of the earth. In places like Antioch and Cyprus and Iconium and and Lystra and beyond, churches are being planted all over these places. Those who once were God's enemies are now seated at his table because of the grace of God and the glory of our Savior. Because of their faith in Christ, those who are far off have been brought near. What a glorious gospel. And James is helping to make that plain. He continues by saying that God takes a people for his own name. Both of those ideas, God's people and for his own name. These are phrases regularly used in the Old Testament for Israel. And he says this is happening for the Gentiles. He's using language similar to Deuteronomy 14.2, which says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But again, instead of talking about Israel here, James says that God is is choosing a people for his own possession, for his own name from the Gentiles. God has done this. John Stott helps us to understand it by by saying this. He says, James was expressing his belief that Gentile believers belong to the true Israel. They're called and chosen by God to belong to the one and the only people of God and to glorify his name. So the promises that are made of God's people also apply to those Gentiles who have faith in Christ. They are true Israel. See, this this passage has lasting impact for us today. It has has value for us today because this is still happening now that God is drawing people, not just Jews, but Gentiles to himself. And James isn't done. He says that not only, you know, is Peter's testimony and and Paul's testimony and and Barnabas' testimony, uh, you know, in agreement, but he also says the prophets agree that God has a desire to bring the Gentiles to himself. You know, God's not just doing something new in the present. This has been his plan from of old to save the Gentiles for his own name. And so the inclusion of the Gentiles might have felt shocking to some of the Jews, but it had been hinted at all throughout the Old Testament. Now, I don't know if you like reading books that much. Some of you may be more movie people. Um, depending on the day, I'm either a book or a movie person. I really like reading books. And, and some of my favorite books are, are those in which the author has been laying these breadcrumbs throughout the story that maybe you didn't even notice. But by the end of the book, he reveals, you know, a twist or or some important detail. And then as you look back in the story, you see that he had been seeding these things all along, right? And maybe you read back the book and you you actually see the the book through new eyes because you know how it ends. Uh, One of the stories that my kids have been reading this past year and, and really enjoyed and me and Kat have enjoyed as well is the Mysterious Benedict Society. It's actually a new show on Disney Plus, too, if, if you're interested. But in that story, there's these kids that the author describes in, in great detail, four unique children, all very different, that, that, he, that are brought together to basically save the world. 
But one of the things the author does is he, he causes you to ask questions about these characters. Why is it that this particular person, you know, as crotchety and cranky as they are, why would that be the right person to help save the world? You know, or what's the deal with all of these weird characteristics that they have? And yet, by the end of the story, the author helps you to understand these things. There's a twist at the end of the first book that was so completely surprising to Kat and me and the kids that it had been hinted all along. We had no idea that's what he was pointing to. And all we could do is laugh and appreciate the genius of the author because it really, it answered our questions and it made total sense once he did it. And we had no idea. He obviously had a plan before he began to write the story. The author did. Now, as we think about, you know, our story, the breadcrumbs throughout the Old Testament, you see, God has been laying these themes down in similar ways, pointing to the reality that, that God isn't going to save just the Jews, but he's also going to save the Gentiles through the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. You can see it in the Gibeonites when they deceived Joshua, right? And, and they were supposed to be destroyed, but they, they lie. And so God brings them in and they're able to somehow serve the, the tabernacle and the, I think eventually the temple. You actually see literal breadcrumbs in the story of Elijah being sent out of Israel to the widow of Zarephath in Sidon. This was Gentile area. So God sends Elijah to go to this widow. She has, if you remember the story, a little bit of wheat or, or flour and a little bit of oil. And she's getting ready to cook her last little cake on a fire. And she says her and her son are going to eat it and they're going to die. That's, that's, that's their lot. There's such a strong famine in the land. This is all they have. And God sends Elijah to her and says, hey, would you, would you share some food with me? And God will cause your flour and your oil to last until it rains again. And guess what happens? Exactly that. God sustains it for her. And not just that, but then later her son dies. And God uses Elijah to raise the son from the dead. Right? Dead heart made alive in a Gentile. Right? You, you see these breadcrumbs. You see his name in the, 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 the man from Syria who has leprosy. He goes to Elisha and, and God heals him. Though there were lepers in Israel, God doesn't necessarily heal all of them, but he heals this guy who is from another nation. God's plan has been unfolding here. And so James is trying to help us to understand this. As he's quoting Amos 9, 11, and 12, he's trying to help us to see that all along God's been desiring to do what's happening at, you know, in, in the book of Acts. And so if you would look with me in Acts 15, starting in verse 15. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. That's probably not the first passage that comes to your mind as you think about linking these things, but James went right there. You see, this, this text is a, is a passage where Amos had just previously, just a few verses for prophesied the destruction of Israel. And now he's saying Israel will be restored. They're going to take back their lands. The, the tent and the houses of David, like the people of God are going to be restored and rebuilt. There's going to be a ruler like David who is a better David, who's going to rule rightly. But as James quotes this, he's saying the fulfillment of this passage is seen in the Gentiles coming to faith and being joined with the church. 
He wants, he wants them and us to see that God isn't just going to restore Israel's fortunes by just, you know, restoring the boundaries that David had. No, he's going to blow them out in such a way that they go to the ends of the earth. Because his people aren't just the Israelites, but it includes the Gentiles. And people, as, as we read earlier, from every tribe and tongue and nation, sitting under the rule of David's greater son, Jesus. Right? It's being restored by the kingdom of, of the true Messiah. So you see, the, the author's been showing us, he's been weaving in these plot twists all along these places where it seems like, you know, you know, death might be certain, God brings life, where, you know, Jesus dies on the cross, and that seems like calamity. Well, guess what? The resurrection then comes, and he is vindicated. All along, he's telling the story like a master storyteller so that we would understand that God's salvation is for all peoples. What a genius author and savior our God is. His plan from of old is to save those of us who are in Christ. Just think about that. His plan from of old, if you are a Christian, was to save you before the foundation of the world. As Ephesians 1, 4 says, he chose you as his sons and daughters that you should be holy and blameless. That's amazing. Such joy that we have in that, knowing that it's been God's plan to do that. And yet, also, if you're not a believer, if you're in this room, you're hearing me speak, if you have either never heard about Jesus or you've turned your back on Jesus or whatever it is, if you don't know Christ, then the invitation is extended to you as well to come to Jesus. This Jesus can save you. He can transform your life. He died on the cross so that your sins may be forgiven. Come to him he will give you rest. If you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus for salvation, he will save you, whether you're from a Jewish background or from a Gentile one. You see, God's not calling you to clean up yourself. He's not calling you to get your act together before you come to him. He says, come to me. You don't add circumcision. You come to Christ. and He will transform you. See, as we, as we think about our passage, we, we recognize that the salvation of the Jews and the Gentiles is ongoing, and it's the fulfillment of the promises that have been made of old. That's what James is trying to help us to see. He's pointing out the reality that we are saved by grace alone. He's trying to answer the question that is brought before the council. But he also then helps us to see as he turns his attention to bringing his judgment, he does help us to see that we're saved by grace alone. But this grace should then free us to turn from our sin and it should encourage us to love one another in our actions, right? So as we are transformed, it should lead to a change in our life. So if you would look at verses 19 through 21 as we hear James sharing his judgment, he says this, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And so, so again, James is bringing his judgment here. And what is it that he's saying? He's saying that his He's saying because of the testimony of Peter 
Because of the testimony of the prophets and Barnabas and Paul and, and other things, James is saying that he agrees with them that the Gentile believers are truly saved and therefore it is his judgment that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So he's, he's saying, he's, he's being 100% clear that the Gentiles are genuinely saved, that there is nothing that they have to add to this salvation. They don't have to add circumcision. They don't have to add the law. They don't even have to do these four things that he's going to talk about later to save them because they already are saved by the wonderful work of God. The Gentiles shouldn't be required to be circumcised or to keep the law of Moses. This is the answer, the clear answer that James is giving. He's upholding the gospel that proclaims that any who come to Christ in faith are saved based on his perfect work and redemption. And he's careful not to add any regulations that would undermine the gospel. You see, James answers very plainly that these believers are saved and we should not add anything to them. And so what follows is not so much about salvation, Instead, he's going to give a description of what are these things that are important for their sanctification, right? Not their salvation. They already are saved through Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. They are his. But what does it look like for them to be sanctified, to be made holy, to be conformed into the image of Christ? What does it look like for them to be walking in faithfulness? This is what he's concerned about as he brings his judgment in verses 20 and 21. And so he's trying to bring clarity to this church. And so there's a tension point in this passage I've already been talking about. If James is saying that counsel shouldn't trouble the Gentiles with circumcision, why does he then give the Gentile Christians four things they're not to do in verse 20? And again, it's because he's not talking about salvation anymore. He's talking about what does it look like to live out our faith daily? And what does it look like, frankly, to live out our lives, you know, in these situations where we used to, you know, we're in mixed you know, mixed groups of believers, right? From all sorts of different backgrounds. And you can think about the divide that used to exist between the Jews and the Gentiles. And now they're being called to live in community together. There, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of struggle there, right? And so he's trying to help them to understand it and see. And so verse 21 helps us to, to understand what he's getting at. So he says, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. So because there's Gentiles living alongside these Jewish believers in their cities, he's calling the Gentiles to consider the consequences of their actions, in particular as they impact the consciences of those other believers, right? Their, their consciences are being upset because of some of the food practices of the Gentiles. And so, so James is laying down very practical things that I think would have been really um, understandable rules for this time period in this city. Right? He's helping them to understand. So this is what he says. He says, avoid these four things. Things polluted by idols. Uh, things uh, avoid, you know, abstain sexual, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. These were probably four practices that were happening in the cities in which the Gentiles lived and of which the Gentiles themselves had been saved out of. That's why he's talking about these four particular things. This list includes things that are always sinful, like sexual immorality, right? So, you know, these aren't just things about conscience, like sexual immorality. He's saying always avoid that. But there's also things in the list that aren't necessarily sinful, like eating meat sacrificed to idols. Paul gives a, you know, a lengthy discussion on this in 1 Corinthians. 
But the common link before, between these four practices were these things were linked to the Gentiles' previous pagan lifestyle. Idolatry and sexual immorality were oftentimes linked in these cultures as a part of their worship of idols. They would commit sexually immoral acts as forms of worship. And according to Dennis Johnson, pagan sacrifices also included the strangling of victims, you know, animals and stuff, so they would capture their life essence. They would strangle them so they could do that to have power. Or they would drink the blood of animals and stuff so that they would have their power as well. It's really strange and bizarre to our ears. But the restrictions that, that James is giving, Dennis Johnson says it this way. He says, to become Christians, Gentiles do not need to become Jews, but they can't remain pagans. That's really helpful. Right? He's, saying, he's saying you've been saved out of this. You've been brought from this. This is what you used to do. You should no longer do this because it's pagan practices, especially associated with idolatry, and it's searing the consciences of your fellow Jewish believers. So as the Holy Spirit's working in our lives, it should cause us to live lives that are distinct from the world. And this is part of what James is trying to stress to these new believers, that they shouldn't be like they used to be. That as they've come to faith, they will turn from those sinful practices that used to be so common to them, things like sexual immorality. But the second thing we should consider, so not only should we not be like the world, He's saying we should consider what practices we do, which may not necessarily be sinful, but cause offense, cause confusion to other believers. And if there are such things in our lives, then we can lay down our rights for the sake of others because of what Christ has given to us, because of the the goodness of our salvation, we are free to lay down our rights for the sake of others. Paul says, you know, idols don't mean anything. But he's willing to not eat meat sacrificed to idols if that means he's saving the conscience of a dear brother. It says this in 1 Corinthians 8, 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Right? And so the idea of this passage, what James is driving at, is how do these people learn to live together in community considering their, their vast differences? Considering the the things that they used to be opposed on, how is it they they begin to live together, obedient to Christ, and caring for one another in love? What does it look like for them to be sanctified and be one people, not two? So again, our, our lives should be changed by the grace of God to pursue godly things. That's the first idea. And so I want you to think about your own life for a second. What are some things that you used to participate in, that you used to give approval to, that God has called you out of? Particularly if there's things that you still are struggling with that God is calling you out of. Is God calling you to abstain from any particular things that aren't godly or that they cause offense to other believers? We can lay those down by the power of the Spirit in obedience to Christ. That's what he's calling us to do. And what would lead you to greater obedience? Think about this. What would lead you to greater obedience to Christ and greater love of your neighbor? How is it that we can grow in our love of Christ and our obedience to Christ and our love of our neighbor? You know, what truths of the gospel do we need applied to our heart and lived out so that this would be the case? 
You know, we, we want to lay down our rights so that they not be a stumbling block, but we also want to be in right relationship with one another. And so the first idea is we should be changed by the grace of God to pursue godly things. But the second is because of God's abundant grace, we gladly restrict our freedoms because we love each other. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33, again, speaking of food, he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that we may be, that they may be saved. Brothers and sisters, I pray that this would be our encouragement to us and a challenge to us, that we would desire to give no offense to one another and that we would desire as well to see each other built up in Christ in love. As we look to uh, our final passage, I want to point you to, if you'll turn into Ephesians chapter four, uh, verse one. I just want to read a, a few verses as we, as we think about the miraculous nature of the unity that God has brought about between the Jews and the Gentiles. We recognize that what James is calling us to, he's not calling us to just a list of rules to follow. In fact, that's the opposite of what he's doing, right? He's saying, you know, you don't have to add a bunch of laws to be saved, but he says, this is what it looks like for you to rightly love each other. But it's not about what rules we follow. Instead, it's what does it look like for us to joyfully obey and follow God? What does it look like for us to have joy in our relationships with one another? You know, what does it look like for us to delight in God so much that it would cause us to care well for our friends and our neighbors and our enemies, right? What does, it, what does it look like for us to delight so much in God that it would be our joy to lay those things down? As we see in Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul encourages this way. He says this, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Lord, would you help us to do that? Would you help us to be eager to express gentleness and patience and, and care for one another, flowing out of the joy that we have in you, flowing out of the unity that we recognize that you have brought about in us? And as we think about this unity, this picture of, of two people brought together into one people, think about how God delights in that. He delights when he sees his people seeking his face. He delights in his people when he sees them loving one another. He delights when his people are gathered together to praise the name of his glorious son. As they rejoice through the power of the Holy Spirit in his great name, he is delighting in us as we delight in him. And so it says in verse four, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So God gives us grace to love one another. He gives us grace to, to rest in him, to obey. He gives us grace to enjoy him as he enjoys his church and delights in us. And so brothers and sisters, let us respond. Let us respond to the glorious gospel. Let's respond in faith as we sing and as we seek to honor each other. Let's respond in a way that's reflective of, our, of the love of our Savior. Amen. So Father, we 
We are people this morning who rejoice that you delight in us, that you have saved us and redeemed us, that we are saved by grace alone, but you call us as we are ex- experience our salvation, that we're to live out our salvation in such a way that we would, we would turn from our sin and that we would love each other by laying down our desires for their sakes. Father, please encourage us as we sing. Please let us sing this last song, just delighting in this reality that you delight in us as we delight in you. Thank you, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.